Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we will continue with our series of fixed income roundtable discussions. Joining us once again is our moderator, head of taxable fixed income strategy for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Leslie Falconio. We're also glad to welcome back Sangita Marfadia, Alina Gallant, Kathleen McNamara, as well as Barry McAlinden. So looking forward to hearing everyone's insights. With that, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's discussion. Welcome back. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, everyone. Um, we appreciate you tuning into this this bi-monthly podcast. And every time we've had this podcast, you know, there seems to be a, given the volatility in interest rates, there's always something, you know, new to talk about in the sense that, you know, you know the value within the fixed income market has been a bit surprising, both in the sense that credit spreads have have actually been fairly well maintained given the volatility. But again, the volatility in interest rates is something that we haven't seen in quite some time, and definitely was not expected, you know, as we are this late in the cycle. So, you know, some I just wanted to read you a, a, a very big, very you know, large overview of our positioning before we talk to our sector specialists. But, you know, you know, we've been you know on this um, you know belief that growth should slow, you know, in the months ahead, and then interest rates should decline, particularly in the 10-year yield in the months ahead, specifically given the fact that we believe that although the Fed might 50-50 hike one more time in November and December, you know, we understand that, you know, another 25 basis point increment in terms of Fed fund rates, given the levels that we've already seen and the aggressive move by the Fed, really won't be necessarily a large headwind to a consumer or corporation, but more importantly, what happens after the Fed pauses. Now, a lot of, of what everyone here has highlighted in terms of our publication has been the shift in terms of what the market or the Fed really dictated in its recent summary of economic projections this past September. And although it was anticipated to be a hawkish tone, the, the Fed actually went beyond the hawkishness that the market was already pricing in. And to be a little bit more specific is that when we think about, you know, what the June uh, summary of economic projections had dictated was the Fed had taken a recession off the table for 2024, but still left 100 basis points of easing in 2024, believing that although there would be no hard landing, you know, as we get later in 2024 and this lagged impact of the Fed fund rate hikes, the consumer and corporations would actually start to feel that, and particularly the consumer, and therefore spending would slow. Now, when you shift just simply a quarter later, and we looked at the summary of economic projections that the Fed dictated in September, while they kept the no recession on the table, they actually took that 100 basis points of easing and put it into 50 basis points. So the market really had to readjust to that. More importantly, the market had to readjust to the fact that, okay, we, we although CIO was not expecting an ease ever in 2023 for us, at least in the second half of the year, we weren't expecting an ease in 2023. And even our 2024 projections within the CIO was pushed further out in terms of an easing. The market had to really, really readjust to this, what I would call a pause for longer. And if, in fact, short rates are going to stay relatively elevated, then we, the market sort of said and the investor said, well, then if I'm going to lock up for a 10-year treasury or, or a longer you know, duration asset, if you will, I need to be compensated for that. 
So now we hear we're hearing about all these variables that really have been around for several months and some some of them years. When I talk about things like quantitative easing is now, or excuse me, quantitative tightening is now being on the table in terms of having an impact to rising interest rates. Meanwhile, quantitative tightening has been you know going on for well over a year. We talk about the deficit and the large deficit, which we all know has been going on for quite some time. And in fact, it was in August when the Treasury Department had announced this larger-than-anticipated supply, and the market actually moved on that. But now that's also coming to the forefront. So when we think about a driver and passengers of really what has led to interest rates moving from a 372 in July all the way up to a 498 today, the driver has really has been the Fed taking out those easings from 2024, and obviously the consistent and stronger growth that we've seen, such as non-farm payroll, the recent retail sales, and the passengers are quantitative tightening and the supply. So as we think about going forward, we still have the expectation that you know yields will come down in 2024. We still like the higher quality sectors such as investment grade corporates, you know, municipals, uh, tips, agency mortgage-backed securities, and remain in that our credit exposure within what we consider that hybrid of IG and high yield in the preferred sector. So as I, as we sort of go into preferred, I want to really start off with with Sangita, who who leads our uh, closed end funds. And I know Sangita, you've really recently made some shifts in terms of your outlook and your allocation, you know, within within your sector. And I just, I wanted you to take a moment to talk about that and how you see things sort of developing as interest rates have changed. Sure. Thanks for having me, Leslie. We did publish a note last week highlighting the preferred funds we cover. Now, given our preferred view on the underlying preferred, we thought this was important at this point. We know that the preferred sector is very sensitive to interest rates, and as you've been talking about higher rates, funds have been impacted. In addition, because funds use leverage, they actually get impacted a lot more than the actual preferred stocks themselves. We also went through lows in mid-May after the regional bank, uh, regional bank crisis, but since then, funds have recovered a little bit. But a couple of reasons why we highlight these funds here. Given that these funds use leverage, the fact that preferred funds that we cover lock in their borrowing costs using interest rate swaps, which means that the distribution, there's a lot more stability and there'll be a lot less risk to the distribution of these funds. Two, these funds pay out qualified dividend income that's income that gets taxed at lower rates, which is very useful for investors in the high tax bracket. Also, these funds at this point are trading at a discount, which is cheaper if you look at one-year, two-year averages. Given where we are with 10-year Treasury yields to almost closer to 5%, we have also seen some tax loss selling, whereby investors are possibly selling their closed-in funds, which have losses they will wait for 30 days and then get back into the same name. The combination of valuation, funds trading at a discount, fixed borrowing costs, which helps with dividend stability, three, paying out qualified dividend income, which gets taxed, as I mentioned, QDI, at a lower rate than regular income tax rate, and our preferred view of the sector is the reason why we highlighted these funds in our notes last week, and, uh, our clients can reach out to their financial advisors to take a look at this note. 
Thank you, Sangeeti. I, I appreciate that. And, and one thing I want to emphasize too, just to just to sort of tail on to some of Sangeeti's points, is that you know when we think about preferreds and the you know some of the headwinds they face when you have such a large rise in interest rates, and we always talk about it's not just the level of rates but the velocity, how quickly you get there. And just in terms of an understanding, given the illiquidity that we're seeing in the market and a lot of these unknowns, no one can guarantee in today's ten-year yield at 4.98 that is going to be the absolute high of the cycle. Okay. No one can really state that with certainty. But what we are saying is that, you know, even though there might be a point in time where hypothetically we go to a 510 and 10-year yield because there is more supply than what's expected in the Treasury market, it's a question of sustainability. And we just don't believe that at those levels interest rates will be sustained. And we do think when you when you go into asset classes and such as Sangina's pro, uh, product and a lot of the others that have that credit component, these are for longer-term horizons. And these are for horizons where we like to really generate that carry. And we do believe that interest rates will fall in 2024. That doesn't mean it's going to be over the next week or two. And as we all know, drivers of total return in fixed income is compounding income, not necessarily whether or not the 10-year goes up or down 50 basis points. So I want to just take that and really shift it over to um, another credit component, which has been, you know, on the mindset of, of many investors. And that's and that's within our high yield and our high yield specialists. And I want to go over to you, Alina, in terms of, I mean, you know, we have the fixed income strategist that we publish monthly. You wrote the lead this month. It was a great lead. It was a great overview in terms of high yield and what we're seeing in high yield. And I know you've been asked a lot, you know, given this move in interest rates, that yes, high yield spreads have widened, but they've actually done pretty well given that large move that we've seen. So, you know, what's your take overall on high yield and, and where do you see positioning here? Hi, Leslie. Um, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> so, you're right. High yield has given up some. High yield has given up 2.7% in total return since August. It is still up 4.4% year to date, but it's definitely given up some of its gains, um, you know, in the last month and a half since really we've had the interest rate volatility. Now, a lot of it does have to do with the big rates move that we've had, but spreads have not been immune. Um, high yield spread is 55 basis points wider over the past month. We're now at 434 basis points. We're roughly halfway to where we started the year, which was 483 basis points. So you're absolutely right. Spreads did move a little bit on the back of the volatility, but it's certainly not an astonishing move. And really, it reflects the fact that the move in rates uh, was driven by a lot of the factors that you said and not so much by the fundamental corporate factors that would impact high-yield companies per se. Now, our view on high-yield as an asset class hasn't changed. So we remain neutral, and that's mainly because we feel a sort of tug of war between several factors. On the negative side, the economy may be slowing, as you mentioned, as the impact of higher for longer rates catches up. And we expect a worsening of corporate credit metrics, and that's really due to the upcoming refinancing needs for a lot of the high-yield issuers. So as they come in and refinance their maturities at much higher coupons, um, they will have higher interest expenses, and their credit metrics are likely to continue to weaken. Now, balancing these factors are the credit fundamentals that while weakening are still quite resilient, and they are actually expected to remain above average through this refinancing cycle over the next few years. 
Also, yields are now very high. We're at 9.4% today. That's 81st percentile since 2001. And so that does provide attractive carry and a buffer on the downside. So while we are neutral on high yield overall, with the spreads having moved by over 50 basis points in the last month and the yields as wide as they are, uh, we do think that there are a number of opportunities within the high yield market. As I mentioned earlier, there are many companies whose fundamentals remain strong and are now trading at quite attractive yields. So, for example, we still like the short-dated high-yield bonds of good quality companies. Investors can earn close to 7.5% on two-year paper in those names. We also like some idiosyncratic opportunities. There are double B-rated companies that sold off you know, on the back of the volatility in the last month and are now trading with, you know, quite a bit more attractive spread than they were over the summer. And they could present a good entry point for some of those high quality names. Thank you, Lena. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that we've talked about in terms of the velocity of interest rates and, you know, some of the, although widening out, that we've had, a, you know, the spreads have, have been fairly contained on the those sectors that have a little bit more embedded credit risk. But I do want to shift over just just for a second to to for a bit to talk to Kathleen and and you know Kathleen who 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 runs our munis I mean she's she, herself along with a lot of uh, investors who do higher quality type products has been particularly susceptible to interest rate volatility and because of that interest rate volatility higher quality sectors when you are going through periods like this have a tendency to underperform particularly those ones that ones that might be a little bit more stable or not have as much correlation to interest rate volatility, such as the higher credit embedded credit sectors. So with that said, Kathleen, I know we've seen some relative value lately. I know that, you know, given the velocity that we've seen in interest rates, uh, opportunistically, we were seeing some good value in your sector. I just w- wonder if you would expand on that. Uh, sure, Leslie, I'm happy to. I mean, you know, the muni sector is now under downward price pressure, and that reflects a confluence of factors. I mean, first and foremost is the U.S. Treasury rate volatility that you just spoke about at length, and certainly that volatility has spilled over to influence the direction of the muni market. You know, second, what we're seeing now is the muni market is in the midst of a seasonal trend. I mean, this happens in the October-November timeframe whereby the pace of new issuance exceeds the par amount of municipal bond redemptions. So in that instance, you know, when net supply turns positive, we often see yields back up, even if we don't have treasury rate volatility. So in this current instance, of course, we are seeing a backup in rates. We saw some high-profile, large issuers bring deals to market this week, and those deals were structured with higher coupons to spark demand. And finally, um, we are seeing outflows from municipal bond mutual funds accelerate, you know, earlier this month, and that's not surprisingly reflecting the volatile rate environment. But as a result, the yields now on offer on municipal bonds have become much more attractive for buyers. You know, as a point of reference, yields on AA high-grade munis in the two-year spot, again, high-grade, you don't have to step down in credit quality stand at a 3.65%. That's up 150 basis points compared to levels seen in mid-January. Further out on the curve, investors can obtain yields of roughly 4.5% at the 20-year spot, and that's up over 100 basis points since the end of July. So if you adjust those yields for taxes, short-dated two-year munis, you know, again, high quality, have taxable equivalent yields of over 6%. 
Further out on the yield curve, you're looking at a taxable equivalent yield of 7.7%. And if you throw in some state taxes in there, you know, for like residents of like New York, New Jersey, and California, where those state tax burdens are very, very high, we are seeing taxable equivalent yield jump to over 9%. You know, so for us, you know, that does suggest very good value for income investors with longer term time horizons. Of course, we still expect volatility in the near term, but uh, in this period of volatility and positive net supply, which is an additional headwind to the muni market, I think it represents a good entry point for munis. The other um, part of the market that we wanted to point out, we pointed out in, the, in our last um, fixed income strategist, is a smaller and lesser known part of the muni market, the taxable muni market. You know, most of the market is tax exempt, but bear in mind there is a segment of the muni market that's taxable. That sector ap- uh, appeals to investors that do not seek federal tax exemption, but the sector does align nicely with CIO's message and focus of buy high quality bonds. You know, keep in mind the credit quality and taxable munis is the same credit quality and tax exempt munis. The average credit rating of the segment is double A. By comparison, the average rating of the investment grade corporate market is single A. And what we're seeing there is we're seeing some pretty attractive values uh, versus corporate debt at the with like structure and ratings. If I look across the curve and I compare AA taxable units to AA corporates, there's a spread anywhere from 10 to 20 basis points along the curve. So, again, that represents some pretty good value um, for taxable units. I'll end there with that point and pass it back to you, Leslie, and, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Yep. Thanks, Kathleen. And I just wanted to point out that, as Kathleen mentioned, um, tax monies and are now part of our message and focus. And in the recent U.S. CIO House View, Kathleen had a really nice section talking about the relative value in the taxable municipal side as well. So, so some of you who, who follow our House View alongside the fixed income strategist, please take a look at her section. It was really well done. Um, I also want to just now, as we go to the um, industry side, I sort of want to end with the investment grade corporates, which is a sector we've been most preferred on for a very long time. And actually, it's done, you know, outside of the interest rate component, which we all know has been a bit of a, a headwind towards almost all of fixed income. Um, you know, spreads were, has held in there quite well, too. And alongside, I know I want to bring in Barry, Barry McElinnan, who actually specializes in the financial side, which we know has been a very big point of interest to um, investment grade corporates and actually just the market as a whole. So, Barry, I just wanted you to just touch upon your outlook um, on IG, how maybe this rising rates has impacted different sectors within the investment grade market. Yeah, thanks, Leslie. So, the rise in rates uh, has impacted certainly in the total return performance of investment grade corporates. I think uh, it's interesting to look at the distinction, though, where it's really been the longest maturity segment of the market. So corporate bonds that mature greater than 10 years that have really um, bore the brunt of, of the price decline. And that segment is down about 5.9% year to date. Whereas the very short end in IG is um, positive up 2.3% year-to-date. And if you look at uh, intermediate maturity IG, which is often classified as 1 to 10 years, uh, that is up about 0.6% compared to the IG index itself, which is down 1.4%. So definitely um, there's been this bifurcation return um, by maturity segment. I think, as you mentioned, another area that's been impacted by higher rates more recently have been 
the financial component uh, within investment grade credit. And we have seen that the you know bank bond spreads, um, you know, remember that premium, that extra spread that got built into the market into, into those sectors after the regional banking events of March. You know that had improved going into kind of the July timeframe, but it, it's really resurfaced again in August and September as interest rates rose. And I think when that happens, you know, investors, you know, tend to sometimes maybe shift their sentiment a bit, like thinking about, all right, you know, why is the market assigning these higher risk premiums again? You know, is there something fundamentally weak in the banks that we should be worried about? But you know, the good news is that we have had the um, the third quarter earnings season began for the uh, U.S. banks last Friday. And here, you know, the takeaway that we're seeing out of the chief investment office is that a lot of the, um, you know, the, the fundamental viewpoint is really intact where, you know, we do see uh, the overall credit profiles of these uh, large U.S. banks, you know, as, as being um, quite strong. And I think maybe some of the concerns that um, the effect of rising rates had, whether it be on the unrealized losses on their securities portfolios, you know, that, um, that has stood to be, um, you know, kind of corrected in terms of any negative sentiment because you look at the capital levels and capital levels for the large U.S. banks overall, um, you know, actually increased uh, quarter over quarter uh, because of basically, you know, the, the revenue and earnings that the, that the banks have been um, maintaining. So it's a very strong environment still for, you know, bank revenues, whether it be interest revenue, but also non-interest uh, trading activity, you know, volatility in bond markets helps uh, bank trading businesses. Um, so from, from that perspective, you know, the uh, earnings season, you know, has been uh, showing good results. And then, you know, you look at other areas such as, um, composition of bank loan portfolios, and uh, you're really seeing that you know the the U.S. consumer, um, you know those types of loans have been holding up you know quite strong. Uh, you know it's still the uh, the pressure points of more commercial real estate where you're seeing banks uh, putting more uh, reserves, you know provisioning for for losses in those categories. But, you know, we think the fact that, um, you know, banks are undergoing that, you know, process of doing so, um, you know, should should mean that it doesn't turn into being a bigger problem, you know, as far as bank loan books and, you know, the losses that materialize should be accounted for in what's already set aside. So did want to, you know, point out, um, you know, the, the bank area within investment grade corporate specifically and, you know, just, not, you know, being a, a timely that we're going through this third quarter results period now. And I think it does, you know, confirm just, you know, the, the fundamental um, view where we still think that credit profile, profiles look good for these large banks. And then, you know, when you combine that with spread levels that for the bank sector are actually above uh, historical averages, um, you know, I think that that makes for a, um, you know, a good relative value combination where, you know, again, strong fundamentals, but also a good relative value as well. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate that. And and just to you know, just to wrap up here as we go in the 25 minute mark. I mean, again, you know, we think about as has everyone has spoken with, and all our sector specialists have mentioned today. You know, the key being interest rates, and we know that you know interest rates have have risen in a very short period of time, much beyond our expectation as CIO, much beyond my 
personal expectation as well. And as much as we'd like to say the volatility is going to end in the next month, as the fact is we just we simply don't know right now. And because it's good, this is a show me market, and we need to see the slowdown in the data. We do believe the fourth quarter will come out slower, and we, and we do believe that growth will slow. Into 2024, although we are not expecting a hard landing, we do think some of the lagged impacts of these higher rates, the 8% mortgage rate that we saw print last night, which is the highest since 2000. Kathleen mentioned the two-year treasury, which is actually the highest that we've seen since 2000. So we do expect the economy to slow. We do expect growth to slow into 2024. And as we look at sort of some of these headwinds that interest rates have been this past 38 months, you know, given the fact that, you know, the tender yield started at such a low base, do you think we'll start to move lower over the next six months? But as always, these allocations are for longer term. They're about, you know, having good relative value both on the credit and, and high-grade side, compounding income, and not worrying about what the next 25 or 40 basis points might be in 10-year yield, because we do anticipate some volatility in the year end. And with that said, our next podcast will be in December. And we look forward to talking to you then. And with any questions, please feel free to reach out to all our specialists. Thanks very much. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO dash disclaimer.